The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're reviewing the topic of epigenetic aging, and I'm joined today by Dr. Brent Hansen. Dr. Hansen is currently, although not for much longer, a fellow at the Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Program of Thomas Jefferson University in RMA of New Jersey. Dr. Hansen, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. But before we start, we were just talking about this, but to tell everybody, what will you be doing after fellowship? Um, so after fellowship, I'm actually joining a group in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, which is where I grew up. Uh, so it'll be heading a little closer to home. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. You, you recently published a paper in Human Reproduction about the correlation between epigenetic age acceleration and poor ovarian response. And I wanted to invite you on so you could tell us a little bit about this. Let's start by the beginning. What are some of the reasons for, for investigating this? What, why would it be useful to know the age of a particular tissue or cell type? Sure. So I think, you know, just in the very general sense, this topic relates to tissue aging and cellular aging. And that's a topic that's becoming more and more important, specifically from a reproductive standpoint, as more and more women delay childbearing. So, you know, we have this transition of the female reproductive system over years from pre-puberty to puberty and then the reproductive kind of height, and then we have menopause. During that time, we know that specifically within the ovaries, there are significant changes that are occurring. Um, but what we actually know very little about is why those changes occur. You know, how does the specific tissue age? And then are there variations from one woman to another um, that are potentially useful clinically uh, or have clinical manifestations? So the purpose behind this project was really to investigate this concept of aging. But in order to do that, you have to know how, how to evaluate the age of a tissue or the age of a cell. Um, and there are several ways to do that. Um, but really, it relates to this concept of does your chronologic age or how old you are in years line up with how old your tissues are or your cells are? Um, so that was kind of the background for this project, looking at women and their response to ovarian stimulation and their response to IVF um, to determine if potentially there were differences between women who responded well to the IVF process and women who had a poor response, uh, specifically with the number of eggs retrieved, uh, that potentially maybe their ovarian tissues, uh, we were looking at cumulus cells specifically, but maybe their tissues are advanced in age and behave more like an older woman as opposed to these women who do very well during the process. I see. So it's, it's a way of measuring 
you know, sort of do tissues in a particular person as compared to the other person age faster or become old faster, so to speak. Correct. Yeah. And there should be this very predictable fashion of aging that occurs uh, throughout a human's lifespan. Um, but we know that people are obviously not all identical and there's a different pace and a different trajectory for each person. Um, and it's possible that some of those women that have a more accelerated aging process are the women that we see who experience diminished ovarian reserve at an earlier age or potentially have a poorer response than expected um, when they go through fertility treatments. What are some of the ways we can use to measure cellular aging and how well do they correlate with a person's chronological age? How reliable are they? Sure. So, you know, with the, the paper that you mentioned and the paper that we'll be discussing a little bit later, um, the method that we looked at was DNA methylation. Um, basically, this relates to the fact that everyone has an epigenetic profile. There is a methylation pattern that is present within, uh, within each individual, and there's a predictable change that occurs over time with how, um, how tissues are methylated. So we know when we think of epigenetics, things like histone modifications and DNA methylation patterns, those are the two primary ways we can measure epigenetics. Um, and there should be a very predictable change in methylation over time. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit, just with the paper and how we how we looked at this question. Um, but some of the other ways that you can measure measure aging within cells are um, looking at things like telomere length. Uh, we know that telomeres are highly preserved nuclear protein structures that are on the ends of chromosomes, and with each cellular division specifically within somatic tissues, we lose a little bit of the length um, on those telomeres. So telomere shortening is indicative of aging. So that's one other way that you can look at cellular aging. Um, other things include uh, looking at mitochondrial function. There are thoughts that both the, um, the quantity as well as the quality of mitochondria within cells changes over time. And if you're able to measure both of those factors or one of those, those components of mitochondrial function, you may be able to assess the age or the, at least the, the functional age of a tissue. Um, other kind of ways to measure aging, aging are percentages of cellular senescence with tissue, within tissues. So basically this is uh, cellular senescence is just a cell that's in an arrest phase. So if you've reached that point, essentially the function is dead, the cell is, is dead, and it may not be truly biologically dead, but it's no longer active. So measuring the percentage of a, a tissue or a, you know, an organ system um, that has reached that point gives you a sense for how young or old the tissue is. Um, and then kind of more on the research side of things, we have ways that we can look at the nutrients uh, that cells are requiring or the substances that cells are secreting to get this kind of nutrient or energy balance uh, state of a cell. And that gives us another sense for how active or how young or healthy versus how old or pathologic a cell is based on what it's using and what it's putting out. So lots of different ways. There's a lot of ongoing research in this area just because, you know, not only for reproductive medicine, but for other areas of medicine as well, the concept of aging and how quickly a cell changes over time is very important. Yeah, that was a, a great review. I wanted to go into 
the one you used a little bit more, you were analyzing um, a biomarker of cellular, cellular aging that essentially uses DNA methylation part, patterns, the epigenetic clock, the the Horvath clock. How, tell us a little bit about this method. When was it described? How How does it work? Yeah. So there's a lot here. You know, it sounds very <laughs> easy just to say the epigenetic clock. We make it sound like it's this very, like everyone knows what the epigenetic clock is. Um, <laughs> but it's actually not one thing. It's a multitude of things. And the concept and how it has come to be and how it's developed over the past several years is actually really interesting. There's some, some history there. So in the 2000s, uh, you know, many people were looking at how we can predict the age of tissues. And that in and of itself is not extremely important because if you look at a 30-year-old woman and you want to predict how old her white blood cells are, and then you find something that predicts them to be 30 years old, you know, this doesn't sound like earth-shattering science. It's like, well, yeah, you've exactly predicted what you already knew. You could have just asked her how old she is and gotten to the same result. Um, but it becomes more important when we have people who fall outside of the norms, you know, so what if you have a 30 year old woman whose white blood cells actually line up with something that's 38 years old or, or 40 years old, that sounds pathologic. And the same is true within the reproductive system, where if you have a woman who's 30 years old, whose ovaries are behaving like a 40 year olds, then that's a problem. So this concept of the epigenetic clock actually started um, with uh, Alex Schumacher, who was a German scientist who presented this concept in 2009, uh, basically saying that you could look at epigenetic profiles. He was looking at mice specifically, and you could look at the epi epigenetic methylation patterns um, and come up with a prediction model for a specific tissue, looking at white blood cells in that case, uh, that would predict that mouse's age. That concept then morphed into the human realm where um, you had uh, an individual in California, Hanum, who was looking at the same kind of question saying, could you look at an individual's cells and predict their age? And really they're looking at the population wide sort of scale because they want a model that works when you apply it to any individual. So, Horvath is the uh, epigenetic clock model that we used in the study that we uh, recently published. And that was the first model that looked at multiple tissue types. So basically this was a calculation, a statistical prediction model where you could take cells from various tissue types. He looked at 51 different tissue types when he created this model. And with any of those tissue types applying the same statistical calculation, um, you could predict the age of that individual. And this works really well for somatic tissues. And we have documented that um, time and time again, many people have replicated the findings of the Horvath clock. Um, and we've actually reached a point where the Horvath clock is being used in fields like um, prediction of, of cancer, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's. So there are many fields of medicine that use this sort of concept by taking cells from individuals and determining, okay, if this individual has Alzheimer's disease, how different are their neurons from someone who does not have that disease? Um, and the same with people with heart disease, when you look at their you know, cardiovascular tissue or their, their uh, red blood cells, white blood cells, so 
Um, it's a kind of interesting field because it's so universal and has such a broad scope uh, within medicine. But our window into this uh, is looking at specifically reproductive aging and ovarian aging. And, you know, we wanted to find out if the Horvath model uh, stood true and was able to accurately predict the chronologic age of women. Um, and then we broke that down into women who responded well to IVF and women who responded poorly to IVF to find out if the model was predictive in both of those situations. Uh, and we looked at two different cell types, white blood cells, which was representative of the somatic tissues and cumulus cells, which would be more rep representative of the germline tissues. And that's, that's an important point I wanted to touch on, that the aging model doesn't quite predict the aging of the person itself, but rather of the tissue we're studying. And it could be specific to that specific cell type you're studying or to that specific tissue within the person, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's a great distinction to make. Because, you know, predicting the chronologic age of the person is actually not the goal of any of these models. It's predicting the age of the tissue or of the cell type being analyzed, uh, because that's the, the piece that's hopefully going to provide us with some clinical information. And you may have individuals that have accelerated tissue aging within certain cell types and not others. And you may have individuals who have kind of universal aging or acceleration of aging of different tissues and, and cells throughout different, you know, time points. Um, and that may be indicative of a different sort of clinical problem. Right. And that, that kind of brings us right to your study. Can you walk us a little bit through what you did? Sure. So we were looking at uh, women who were undergoing IVF. And this was from 2017 to 2018 that we enrolled patients. We ultimately enrolled 175 women going through the IVF process. And this was really an all comers sort of study. We weren't looking specifically at poor responders or good responders or young or old patients. It was really a, a good mix of everybody who was coming through our center during those, those time, uh, that time window. And what we did was on the day of their trigger shot, uh, we enrolled them. And then on the day of their egg retrieval, we took a, a sample of blood in order to analyze white blood cells. And then at the time of their retrieval, we collected their cumulus cells. So these were pooled cumulus cells. So basically each um, woman who had X number of eggs retrieved, we would pool her cumulus cells. And then we sent both the white blood cell sample uh, as well as the cumulus cell sample for DNA methylation analysis. And again, this was using the Horvath model uh, to try to predict this woman's tissue age, knowing her chronologic age. And what we ultimately found out was that the Horvath model, which had been validated in many prior studies, was accurate when predicting the age of a, a patient for white blood cells. However, what we found was that the cumulus cells really didn't line up with the predictions of age that we expected. You know, and this could be for any number of reasons, but I think the biggest one is that somatic cells and germline cells behave very differently there is a different aging process that occurs within the ovaries than there is that is representative of the rest of the body. Um, you know, women are born with all the eggs they will ever have. 
and then throughout their lifespan, those eggs are used. Uh, and clearly there is an aging process that happens, but it's not the same in concept as many of the other parts of the body. So the Horvath model was not accurate uh, in that sense. What we found was that when we applied the model, on average, the, um, the cumulus cells looked like they were from an eight-year-old, whether they were from a 30-year-old or a 39-year-old, it didn't really matter. It didn't change over time. So not saying that everyone's ovaries are the ovaries of an eight-year-old, but I think it just proves that the, the formula, the statistical model didn't work in that setting. Um, so what was a little more interesting was that when we broke up our patients into poor responders, which we defined as women who had five eggs retrieved or fewer, and then good responders who had more than five eggs retrieved. Uh, when we looked at the white blood cell analysis and the methylation patterns there, we found that the women who had a poor response actually did exhibit some age acceleration within their white blood cells uh, by about two, a little over two years. So they, on average, you know, if you were a 31-year-old, your, your white blood cells behaved like a 33-year-old's. Uh, and this was interesting because when you think about women who respond poorly to IVF, we tend to believe that that's an isolated reproductive problem. But this study was showing that actually within their white blood cells, this somatic tissue, this somatic cell line, there were abnormalities. You know, they behaved differently than women who responded well. And is this some generalized problem where, you know, the manifestations of poor response to IVF are really part of a bigger picture. I don't know, we couldn't answer that from this study, um, but it is interesting to note that these women are different from women who behaved more robustly uh, in response to IVF. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting and it's a, it's a very, very, very interesting paper. And I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, what you just mentioned, this kind of brings us back to the idea of it, what we were speaking about before of how we can age differently in different tissues, but perhaps that there is an overall bigger picture of that we are aging faster or slower as an organism than somebody else, correct? Right. And I think that's really the part that we don't know the answer to uh, and that we should continue and people are continuing to try to answer um, because you know, no organ system is truly isolated from any other organ system within the body, but we know that there are certain people who are healthy otherwise and have problems with fertility, you know, or, you know, are healthy otherwise and have problems within their cardiovascular system or you name it. Um, so I think this, this question of why are these women exhibiting changes in their white blood cells when the problem truly lies in the reproductive system, or is it part of a bigger picture? And that's something we don't know the answer to, and I think it will be a combination of studies going forward that will answer that. Uh, this is really a unique opportunity for kind of a multidisciplinary approach to medicine where the, the Horvath aging concept and aging in general is being evaluated in dermatology, in neurology, in cardiology. So there are so many pieces of medicine that are interested in this topic that I think we may actually gain more from each other than we can see right now, um, you know, looking down the road. Yeah, that's so, so promising. The other, the other question I had for you was regarding the aging of the cumulus cells specifically. Um, 
You mentioned that there was no way to, that there was no correlation, so to speak, or the, the prediction model didn't work between the age of the cumulus cells and the age of the person. Um, is it really that these cells, um, I mean, that the model doesn't correlate specifically with the age of the cells, or is it rather that these cells age differently because of their physiology, like you said, uh, a lot of these, well, all these cells are arrested at some point and then kind of continue developing. Does that affect that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, in my opinion, they have to be aging in some way, you know, because it, it doesn't seem logical to me that um, that cells don't age. And we obviously, see, we see changes in the reproductive possibilities and reproductive performance of women over time, um, which I think, you know, relates at least on some level to the function of the ovaries. So, um, you know, I think that there is some aging happening, but I don't think that our predictive models are necessarily accurate for those. So actually, when you mentioned that, one of the aspects of our study was to look and see if we could come up with an alternative prediction model that was accurate for the cumulus cells. So we had 175 patients enrolled. We took samples from you know, their cumulus cells and tried to statistically generate a new model using 10% um, of the samples as a test and then the remaining 90% as a proof of concept uh, where we attempted to you know, perhaps come up with our own model that would work in predicting the chronologic age of these patients. <clears throat> We were unsuccessful doing that uh, and ran multiple iterations of that statistical test using different samples, um, but ultimately we weren't able to come up with anything that was predictive, which just goes to show I think we don't understand the aging process of cumulus cells or the ovaries in general. I know you pooled all the cumulus cells, um, but does it make any sense to unpool them or to do them individually and see, you know, this egg really worked well, really developed properly. This one didn't. It's cumulus cell specifically. So that was actually one of the biggest uh, criticisms of reviewers during the manuscript publication process, um, that if we were able to separate out the, the cumulus cells for each individual follicle or each oocyte, um, then we would have a better concept of you know, this is one that turned into an aneuploid embryo, or this is one that developed and ultimately resulted in a healthy live birth. Are there differences on that level? So I think that's absolutely valuable. Um, that being said, it's logistically challenging to, to collect cumulus cells only from one oocyte. And on top of that, one of the problems that you run into specifically with methylation um, analysis is that you need enough tissue to run the analysis. So with the white blood cell samples, we always had plenty of tissue. We had blood samples. If we needed to, we could get another blood sample. So there was never a, a patient that had a failure of analysis looking at the white blood cells. But when we looked at the cumulus cells, there were patients who had to be excluded from the analysis because they didn't have enough tissue to adequately run the, the analysis. So when you run into, um, individual cumulus cells or cumulus cells from individual follicles, that's even going to be more pronounced. And I'm not saying it's, it's not doable or, you know, we should probably look into that, um, but it's just more logistically challenging and you're going to run into a lot more situations where you have failure of, um, or an uninterpretable result. 
uh, you know, the whole lifespan of an oocyte is very kind of interesting to think about because you, your cells in general are turning over all the time and you're going through this, uh, this sort of gradual process of aging. Whereas this arrest phase where, you know, the ovaries are just held in this sort of freeze state, uh, you know, for so long, so many years. Um, and really the, um, the follicles don't get going until it's their cohort, their month. Uh, it's just a very different scenario than, than we see in somatic tissues. Right. And where, where do you think we can go from here? What, what future research? I know you mentioned, of course, this interdisciplinary approach and, you know, where, where to go from here. But I'm wondering what kind of specific areas you would be involved in or you would like to see happen in the next few years to, to give us a bit more answers in this sense. You know, I think um, this question of why the white blood cell age prediction is more advanced in women with reproductive problems who are otherwise healthy is something that I think we should investigate further. Um, I, I do think that there may be some broader implications or broader health consequences for women who are in that situation. Um, but then also looking at people who had a poor ovarian response let's say, to IVF and didn't have age acceleration, you know, how are those women different than the ones who did? Uh, or on the, the converse, if you have someone who responds very well to IVF and still exhibits age acceleration, what's going on there? So I think investigating these specific outliers is going to give us a better understanding. Um, but obviously, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, the DNA methylation patterns are only one way of assessing cellular aging. So it may be that we investigate a different route or a different method in order to really get a better grasp for what's going on in the ovaries if methylation doesn't seem to be the pattern that changes over time. You know, and, and people are looking at this. They're looking at mitochondria and mitochondrial aging. Um, you know, they're looking at the, the length of telomeres. We've looked at that within our own group. So I think it's going to be, like I mentioned earlier, a combination of things um, that's going to help us have a better grasp down the road. Yeah, so, so promising. I, I can't wait. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Henson, for being with us today, for taking the time. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.